Good morning, everyone. Our second reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 14, verses 17 through 49. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Be careful. Don't let these Kohathite men be destroyed. You must do these things so that the Kohathite men can go near the most holy things and not die. Aaron and his sons must go in and show each Kohathite man what to do and what to carry. If you don't do this, the Kohathite men might go in and look at the holy things. If they look at these things, even for a moment, they must die. The Lord said to Moses, count all the people of the Gershon family. List them by family and family group. Count all the men who are from 30 to 50 years old who come to serve. These men will have the job of caring for the meeting tent, caring for the meeting tent. This is what the Gershonite family must do and the things they must carry. They must carry the curtains of the holy tent, the meeting tent, its covering, and the covering made from fine leather. They must also carry the curtain at the entrance of the meeting tent. They must carry the curtains of the courtyard that are around the holy tent and the altar. And they must carry the curtain for the entrance of the courtyard. They must also carry all the ropes and all the things that are used with the curtains. The Gershonite men will be responsible for anything that needs to be done with these things. Aaron and his sons will watch all the work that is done. Everything the Gershonites carry and the other work they do will be watched by Aaron and his sons. You must tell them what they are responsible for carrying. This is the work that the men of the Gershonite family group must do for the meeting tent. Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest, will be responsible for their work. Count all the men in the families and family groups of the Marari family group. Count all the men who are from 30 to 50 years old and come to serve. These men will do a special work for the meeting tent. When you travel, it is their job to carry the frames of the meeting tent. They must carry the braces, the posts, and the bases. They must also carry the posts that are around the courtyard. They must carry the bases, the tent pegs, the ropes, and everything that is used for the poles around the courtyard. List the names and tell each man exactly what he must carry. This is what the people of the Marari family will do to serve in the work of the meeting tent. Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest, will be responsible for their work. Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the Israelites counted the Kohathites. They counted them by families and family groups. They counted all the men from 30 to 50 years old who were able to serve. These men were given special work to do for the meeting tent. There were 2,750 men in the Kohath family group, and they were qualified to do this work. So these men from the Kohath family group were given their special work to do for the meeting tent. Moses and Aaron did this the way the Lord had told Moses to do. Also, the Gershonite family group was counted. All the men from 30 to 50 years old who qualified to serve were counted. These men were given their special work to do for the meeting tent. There were 2,630 men in the families of the Gershon family group who were qualified. So these men from the Gershon family group were given their special work to do for the meeting tent. Moses and Aaron did this the way the Lord had told Moses to do. Also, the men in the families and family groups of the Marari family were counted. All the men from 30 to 50 years old who qualified to serve were counted. These men were given their special work to do for the meeting tent. 
There were 3,200 men in the families of the Marari family group who were qualified. So these men from the Marari family group were given their special work. Moses and Aaron did this the way the Lord told Moses to do. So Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the Israelites counted all the people in Levi's family group. They had counted each family and each family group. All the men between the ages of 30 and 50 who qualified to serve were counted. These men were given a special work to do for the meeting tent. They did the work of carrying the meeting tent when they traveled. The total number was 8,580. Each man was counted just as the Lord commanded Moses. Each man was given his own work and told what he must carry just as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Children to come forward. I need to grab my stuff. I grab that. Come on. I guess we can go over here. How about that? You want to scooch over that side? Woo, woo, woo. Okay. There you go. Hello, children. Um, ra- raise your hand if you have a. Uh, been one of the ushers who takes up the offering. Okay, um, I actually have to put mine over here right now. Um, one, two, have you done it yet? So, okay, now all of you are qualified to do it, okay, and Laura Haynes uh, can help you do that. We think it's really important. Have you done it? Yeah. Um, was it uh, a little scary to do it? Did you know how to do it? How did you know how to do it? They, they explained it to you. Annie, Lori, have you done it? Okay. So um, uh, uh, last year, uh, we started having the young people take up the collection uh, because the children's ministry thought it was really important to begin to explain to them how the church works and give them a role uh, to, to have in the church. Now, since we've had the combined service uh, since November of last year, uh, and we used to call them the tiny ushers, okay? So John Haynes, when he would uh, uh, invite the ushers forward, would, would invite the tiny ushers forward, which I liked. And then when we combined the services together, John said he was going to invite the tiny ushers forward, and he realized the mistake Uh, because he saw Bert Holmes back there with a plate in his hand. And he had to say, you know, the ushers tall and small, okay? How many of you guys know who Bert Holmes is? Can you point him out to us? Okay, Bert Holmes, Bert Holmes, can you stand up? I don't mean to embarrass you or anything. Bert Holmes is the tallest man in this congregation. Okay, thank you very much, Bert. Um, And Bert Holmes came to this church as a child when he was about your age. He came here first when he was eight years old, and he has been here all of that time. He has served this church in many different ways. He's been an elder. He's been the clerk of session. He sings in the choir. Today he was in the antiphonal choir. We're singing up here. He knows the part. He's singing it back there, which, which really helped us out. Okay, um, And so one day you will be like Bert Holmes, Okay, you'll have been raised in the church, 
you will have taken your part in the workings of the church, and we think it's important for you to start that uh, even, uh, even now. Now, last week, um, Bert Holmes, so after the plates are collected, he uh, puts it in a bag or something like that, uh, and uh, he, he showed me this. You know what that is? It's a penny, right? Okay, someone had put a penny in the someone had put a penny in the collection. It wasn't this one. Okay. I don't touch the money that goes in the plate. Okay, just in case you're wondering, not even a penny. Okay, Bert, Bert took it back and, and he did whatever he does with it. This is this is like it. There was a penny in the plate. Okay? And Bert thought it was important that there was a penny in the plate because that tells us that that was what someone was able to give. Now, when I was your age, I used to get an allowance. Does anybody here get an allowance? Okay. AJ, how much do you get? Per? Per, wow. You got rich parents, but that's great. <laughs> Five bucks a week, I'm moving to your house. How much do you get? Five dollars a week. Five dollars a week, too. Wow, this is a very prosperous congregation. Okay, when I, was, when I was a kid, I used to get a dime. Okay, that's a dime. Okay, and a dime, that's, ten, that's ten, that's a dime. That's a ten cents. And then when I would come to church, I had my penny for the collection plate. Because the penny was one-tenth, it was the tithe of the dime I got uh, as, as, uh, as, as my allowance. Okay, so as you're getting money, the other part of being part of this church is that we support the work of the church, and it's proportional, okay? So people who are very rich and have a lot of money, they give a certain portion of their income to the giving, and if you get 10 cents a week, you can give a penny a week, and it makes you part of what God is doing here in this church. You guys are important to this church, Okay? You're part of this church. It's not just your parents' church. It's your church too. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the children uh, in our midst, and we pray that you continue to grow them up uh, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We pray that we would be faithful to them as we're faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can go back. Now I need my coffee. Oops. Need my little coffee. All right. One of the great things about uh, the children's sermon is that the children actually listen. <laughs> okay. Makes me feel good about myself. Okay. <laughs> so I want to say that pew pencils and welcome bags matter in this church. There are a lot of things that go into making this church work, and every one of those little things counts, including the pew pencils. 
I mean, it's really handy to have a pew pencil when you need to uh, write something down. I think we're actually going to replace the pew pencils with pew pens that have the HVPC name on it. But that little convenience to having the pew pencils in place, it takes some thought and some time and some consideration. Someone has to worry about that. Someone has to check the pews. Someone has to order the pencils and sharpen the points. And all of that work matters. It all counts. They matter enough, those pew pencils and the other little accoutrements that we have in the pews, like, I don't know, giving envelopes and welcome cards, those things matter enough that the worship committee spent some time in their meeting the last time they met talking about just those things and developing some plans to do a better job with our humble little pew pencils so that it's more convenient for us, for it's more conducive for our worship Service. Now, of course, the worship committee also considers things that we might think are loftier, like things that we considered in the sermon last week. Maybe you remember last week's sermon. Uh, I had to look it up, but last week we were talking about the elements that go into a worship service, the parts of the worship service that are there because the Bible tells us to include them. We were talking about the regulative principle of worship. We believe that uh, only things that the Bible tells us to include in worship should be included in worship. And the things um, uh, that are, are included uh, according to Scripture in worship are prayer, the reading and the proclamation of the Word of God, singing to God, testimonies about God's activity in our lives, and I think we don't do enough of that, the sacraments, we'll do a sacrament uh, this morning, and also the blessing of the benediction. Those are uh, elements of the worship service that are commanded, that are indicated in Scripture, and they are grand and they are noble elements. In the book of Numbers, those elements are under the direction of the prophet, uh, who is Moses, or the priest, uh, who is Aaron and his son. So this week, last week we talked about the kind of the grand elements of worship. This time I want to talk about some of the humbler parts uh, that go into making a worship service. In the book of Numbers, the humbler parts uh, fall to other Levites, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merorites. Okay, so this is our fifth Sunday uh, in our sermon series through the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers tells us about the Israelites traveling across the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land. After 400 years of slavery, the Israelites were rescued, they were ransomed out of Egypt. That story is told for us in the book of Exodus. The book of Joshua picks up the story. That's the, the, Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible. And it describes the Israelites' entry into the promised land. But between Egypt and the promised land is the, the sojourn in the Sinai desert. And that's described for us in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, the children of Israel are pilgrims. They are traveling from one place to another. They've been rescued out of slavery, but they're not yet at peace or settled in the promised land. They're saved, but they don't yet have a home of their own. And if you think about it for just a second, you'll realize that the book of Numbers is all about 
the life of a Christian because we have been rescued out of slavery to sin, but we've not yet entered into the peace and the rest of the promised land. This world is not our home. We're just on a journey, on a pilgrimage here. Now, the journey that we read about in the book of Numbers, I guess you already know, that journey actually took a full human lifetime, 40 years. People didn't live so long back then. The people who were rescued out of slavery in Egypt were not the people who entered into the promised land. A full generation lived and died out there in the wilderness on the way in the pilgrimage. God was watching over them. God was leading them. God was teaching them things along the way. God was forming a holy nation for themselves in that process. The book of Numbers is a book about the Christian life, which is why it is so important for us to study it carefully. You may remember that the book of Numbers uh, begins with a census. That was in chapter 1. God tells Moses to count all of the Israelite men of fighting age. And we get that count tribe by tribe, 46,500 in the tribe of Reuben, 59,300 in the tribe of Simeon, and so on and so on. All of the men age 20 and up are counted except for the men in the tribe of Levi. And that's because those men are not going to be fighting. Those men have the job of taking care of the tabernacle and all of the things in the tabernacle. In chapter 2, we learned about the layout of the camp. More than one million Israelites are living out there in the Sinai Desert. They are an enormous refugee tent city. And God specifies the precise layout of the camp. People are organized according to the tribes. The camp is laid out as a square. And there are three tribes on the east and three tribes on the south and three tribes on the west and three tribes on the north. And in the middle of the square is the tabernacle. And in the middle of the tabernacle is the word of God and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in the open area around the tabernacle are camped the tribe of Levi, which is the 13th tribe, if you count things a certain way. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The Levites are responsible for the religious life of the nation of Israel. In chapter 3, we learned how the Levites were claimed by God. God owns them as the ransom for the firstborn of Israel who were not killed in the great plague down there in Egypt. You remember how on the night of the first Passover, the firstborn in every household in Egypt was killed by the angel of the Lord except for those who had placed the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. Now God then claims the entire tribe of Levi as his payment as his ransom for all of those firstborns that he could have killed. And God is very exact in his accounting. It turns out there were more firstborns saved in Egypt than there were Levites. So God required a cash payment, five shekels for each extra person. And we read about that in Numbers chapter 3. The Levites belonged to God 
in a special way. Of course, all of the children of Israel are God's chosen people, but within that holy nation, God sets aside the Levites to take care of the worship life of the nation there at the tabernacle. Now, there are two primary categories of activity in worship. We can think of them as God talking to us and us talking to God. When God talks to his people, we call that prophetic. And when God's people talk to God, we call that priestly. The prophet and the priest are two different categories of Levites who are involved in the worship life of the people of God. God speaks to his people through his prophets. At the time of the book of Numbers, the prophet in Israel is Moses. God speaks to Israel through Moses. God gives his written word, uh, the covenant, through Moses. At that time, God's written word was in the Ark of the Covenant. It was like physically present there on those stone tablets in the tabernacle. Today, if you go to a synagogue, the Torah, or the written word of God, will still be stored in a box that's called the Ark. It'll be, you know, behind, it'll be behind the behind the pulpit, and the rabbi will go back there and take out the scrolls and will open it up to the passage that they're going to read that day, and he will read the word of God, and he will begin to explain the word of God to the congregation. This explaining of the word of God is what we call preaching. The prophetic office today is in the hands of the preacher. This pulpit is the podium of the prophet of this congregation, and what the preacher says may never deviate from what is in the written word of God. Now, this is how you know a false prophet. The Bible says this, but the false prophet will say, well, we don't believe that anymore. God has given us a new revelation that says something different. In every single case, 100% of the time, The person who preaches something different from what the Bible says, the person who says that a new revelation has superseded what the Bible says, 100% of the time, that person is a false prophet. Some of them may be very nice. Some of them may be very appealing. But all of them are condemned. So... One of the functions of worship is the prophetic function, God speaking to God's people. We do that here in worship by reading God's word and then explaining or preaching God's word. Christianity, of course, is a whole Bible faith. We as Christians believe that the whole Bible from Genesis through Revelation is God's word. All of it is God's word. Now, there are some out there who will suggest that some parts of the Bible are more truly the word of God than other parts. And, of course, the parts that they exclude are the parts that they don't like, and the parts that they keep are the ones that are more to their taste. These people are repeating the oldest Christian heresy. There was a fellow by the name of Marcion who did the same thing way back in the early days of the church, And when that happened, the bishops of the church, the bishops from all the different parts of the world, they got together and they conferred on the matter and they said, no, 
Marcion is wrong, and his teaching is anathema. The whole Bible is the word of God. You'll find that heresies are attempts to emphasize one part of the word of God at the expense of another part of the word of God. You might want to think about heresies as a kind of doctrinal extremism. The Bible, for example, teaches that God is both merciful and just. One heresy might emphasize his mercy and throw his justice out the window. And an opposite heresy will emphasize his justice but forget all about his mercy. Orthodoxy, right teaching, orthodoxy holds that these truths must be held together. One heresy will emphasize the humanity of Jesus. The opposite heresy will emphasize the divinity of Jesus. But orthodoxy holds that Jesus is both human and divine. One heresy will emphasize the freedom of the human will. The opposite heresy will emphasize God's sovereignty. But orthodoxy holds that both of these truths are part of our faith. Orthodoxy is always more difficult than heresy because heresy is simpler and seemingly more self-consistent. Orthodoxy requires that we hold in tension the entire teaching of the Bible. In the Acts of the Apostles, this is called the whole counsel of God. It's what the apostles taught. Because we believe that the truth lies only in the whole We preach through all parts of the Bible, not just our favorite parts. Of course, we preach David's 23rd Psalm and we preach Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Everyone loves those passages. But we also preach the book of Numbers, which many Bible-believing Christians haven't bothered to read. So one worship activity is prophetic, God speaking to his people through the written word and through its proclamation. A second worship activity is priestly. This is where the people of God cry out to God. While Moses was the prophet of Israel at this time, his brother Aaron is the priest, and the job of the priest was to lead the people in prayers to God, and to make offerings and sacrifices to God. Because God is so holy, he is also dangerous, and only the priest could approach God, and he would do that on behalf of the people to protect the people, and only the high priest could go in the most holy of holies, and he only did it one day of the year, and it was so dangerous even for him to go in there that they would tie a rope around his leg so that if he got struck dead while he was in there, they could drag him out. Now that changes with Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, the veil separating the holy of holies from the ordinary people. It was torn so that by faith in Jesus, we now have access directly to God, and we have access to God directly not because of our own righteousness, but because of the borrowed righteousness of Christ. We receive by faith the righteousness of Christ and we put it on like a borrowed robe 
And with this borrowed robe on, we can enter into the Holy of Holies, which is why, what we do when we come here in worship. We stand before God today, not in our own righteousness, but under the covering of Christ. That also means that in the Christian era, the priestly function is no longer reserved to a special class of people. We Protestants believe in the priesthood of all believers. By faith in Jesus Christ, anyone can approach the throne of mercy. We no longer need a priest to do that for us. We can pray directly to God. Each one of us can offer a priestly prayer also on behalf of other people. That's what we do when we have uh, uh, prayers of intercession and prayers of supplication. We act as priests for one another. In this church, my role is that of the prophet. I was called and ordained uh, to be the one who speaks the word of God to the people of God who gather in this place. But all of you are the priests of this congregation. All of us together offer holy worship directly to God. So we have the prophet and we have the priest. These are two very exalted parts of worship. In the book of Numbers, Moses is the prophet and Aaron and his sons are the priests. Those fellows are all Levites. But I want to talk about the humbler, less exalted parts of the operation of the tabernacle. I want to talk about the rest of the Levites. Remember, there are 22,000 of these guys, you know, and the, the prophet and the priest only account for four. So that's, you know, 21,996 other fellows that we need to account for. They also had jobs. In addition to Moses, who was the prophet, and in addition to Aaron and his sons, who were the priests to serve in the tabernacle, there were three other groups, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites, the Merarians, the Merarites. They're a tribe from Italy, I think. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's been a great blessing having Jordan Goretti uh, read for me. And, and uh, until we get back to like the Gospel of John, I'm going to let him do it. Because these Hebrew names are like killing me. So the Kohathites have a responsibility for the holiest objects in the, in the tabernacle. For the Ark of the Covenant, for the altar, for the spoons and the plates and the utensils that are used with the altar, for the lampstands. Each of these objects had to be wrapped in a certain way. Now, interestingly, the Kohathites are not actually even allowed to wrap them. They're going to be wrapped by the priests um, uh, because the Kohathites are not actually allowed to see them directly. And there are certain colors of cloth that are used to put around the object so they know what's in that cloth um, and would, that would allow the objects to be identified as they're on the march. And all of these objects are then carried on special poles because you can't touch the object directly. I think we have a hard time wrapping our minds around this idea of the deadly holiness of God, of the things belonging to God. People were struck dead who handled the things of God in the wrong way. They would die, and the high priest was the one who was put there to protect the people of God. Only, only the high priest 
had full access, and he only had full access after special preparation one day of the year. It's hard for us to imagine this. One way to think about this, however, is to think about how we would uh, handle radioactive material. With radioactive material, you're going to have to have special coverings. You have special people who uh, are uh, trained to handle it. Um, and so those are the, the, the Kohathites. And then there are the Gershonites who are not, are not allowed to touch the holiest objects but who are responsible for the fabric, for the curtains. And lastly, the Merarites whose job is just to carry the poles and the frames and the pegs and the braces. All of these people are important. All of these people uh, are part of the functioning of the tabernacle and God has laid out a plan for all of this. Sometime last year, while we were still in the divided services, Laura Haynes, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, began to have the, the children involved in the taking up of the collection. And her purpose was very serious. Her purpose was to train these young people in taking on the work of the church, in teaching them that they're really part of this congregation, that they have, they have a place. John uh, Haynes would always call them our tiny ushers. And during this time of our experiment with the unified service, Bert Holmes has stepped in to be our kind of head usher to organize all of the ushers uh, in, a, in, a more systematic, in a more systematic way. And now we have the tall and the small ushers. It seems like these are small jobs, but it's little jobs like this that keep this place humming, and it's little jobs like this that we really need, and you notice it when someone doesn't show up, and all of a sudden the thing that was supposed to be there isn't there, and you're like, well, whose job was that? Well, I don't know whose job that was. There was, well, Charlene was here a little earlier. We, we forgot to put out the gluten-free. We do have gluten-free for those who need gluten-free in the communion, and so she had to find the key, and all of those things happened. Thank God for all of these people. Throughout the course of the week, there are people who are helping this service come together. Last Tuesday, the deacons fed us at our prayer service. Last Saturday, yesterday, the deacons were calling uh, Janet Ungerman and, and Evelyn Brown to see if they needed a ride to church. I could multiply the examples, but the point is the same. It's not just the people who stand up here in the chancel who make this house of worship hum. It's also the Kohathites and the Gershonites and the Merarites who make this the house of the Lord. All of us have the opportunity to be part of the working of God's house. All of us need to honor and to respect those who serve even in these small ways. Pew pencils and welcome bags matter. And the faithful servants who take care of those details for us are serving us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we bless your name and we thank you that you have called us each uh, individually into service in your kingdom and we thank you for those opportunities. Uh, Lord, let us uh, love what it is that we do in the house of the Lord and let us love those who serve us in the house of the Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.